You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We might get started. Welcome, Speezy. <laughs> so I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Yulakut Willem and the people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and future, and any Aboriginal people with us tonight. So welcome. We're talking about work and mobility in the digital age, and um, we're joined by an incredible panel of speakers from various backgrounds who are going to give us their insight on work and the gig economy. I thought I'd set the scene a little bit, introduce myself and kind of frame the conversation and then I'll throw to these guys, introduce them one by one. So firstly, my name's Eugenia Lim and I'm co-director of artist, uh, artist-led company, Aphids. And we've been here at MPAV this last week in residence, sort of, I guess, kind of thinking, moving, even dancing our way through these uh, kind of thorny topics and trying to figure out how we might actually make artwork about it. So artists and gig workers, some of these guys, have been sharing their experiences of working, connecting and surviving in our digital era. And it's been a rare chance to actually see the people behind the app work and to actually kind of share that space together. So even if you've never caught an Uber or ordered delivery, you'd still likely be experiencing the rapid shifts that are happening in our cities. They're tech-driven shifts in terms of the way that we relate to other people, how we move through the city, how quickly and cheaply we expect things to happen. Or maybe your own work is precarious or casualised, or maybe that of the people in your friends and family as well. So I think the gig economy raises big questions about the future of work, about workers' rights, about technology and how it might put workers' bodies on the line, the role of Silicon Valley and tech entrepreneurs in global economics and social cohesion, and our own ethics. How much do we feel okay to outsource? Who's able to outsource versus who is outsourced to? And in the gig economy, risk, inconvenience, and unwanted jobs are outsourced too. So our time, our sense of time, our productivity and consumption patterns are intensifying. So to kind of dip our toes into this murky but fascinating terrain, um, I'm going to introduce our panel tonight. So far down on the left is Josh Kluger, who's a former gig economy worker and is now in his final year of science um, at Deakin. Science education, sorry. After working for two years in the industry with Foodora, he spoke out against writers' poor working conditions and his role was then terminated as a consequence. He went to the Fair Work Ombudsman over wrongful dismissal and that established the precedent that his fellow workers were employees, not independent contractors. This action led or helped lead to Foodora's exit from the Australian market. 
And in his spare time, he's a very keen cyclist who is racking up his kilometres up to 25,000 maybe by the end of the year. Yeah. Yep. Almost, almost there. Great. <laughs> Join me in welcoming Josh. Thank you. And to Josh's right, we have Abdul Wasai or Wasai as he goes by, kind of like Madonna. He's a student of computer science at La Trobe University. And Wasai has worked in the gig economy for more than two years. And in that time, he's worked to raise awareness about workers' rights. He's a regular participant in advocacy and campaigns with the Young Workers' Centre and trade unions and is seeking to work together with them to end driver and rider exploitation. Wasai is also a collaborator and we first met earlier this year while working together on a video project on demand and he was in residence dancing here last week as part of um, AFID's work in development, Easy Riders. Please welcome Wasai. And we have Rochelle Fung next to Wasai, who's a Chinese-Australian multidisciplinary artist whose immersive food delivery show, Nom Nom Nom, won Melbourne Fringe Festival 2018's Innovation in Culturally Diverse Practice Award. The work has also been adapted and shown in communities in East Iceland, and I'll get you to introduce the town later on because I cannot say it at all. Um, suburban Shanghai? Yeah? Yep, and Sydney. Rochelle was a writer for the theatre work show She is Vigilante and is a Next Wave 2020 commissioned artist. Please welcome Rochelle. And to my left is Sarah Kane, who is Research Director, Future of Work, Organising and Enterprise in the Centre for Business and Social Innovation at UTS Business School in Sydney. Sarah is interested in innovation in employment relations and regulation beyond traditional labour law, corporate social responsibility and its link to industrial relations and labour standards in domestic and international supply chains. Sarah is a frequent commentator on industrial relations and gig economy issues in the media and she's chief investigator at GigWatch. Please welcome Sarah. Okay, so I wanted to start with um, some questions to you all about when you first encountered the idea or the words gig economy. Maybe we can start with you, Josh. Uh, I guess I first heard about it with Uber, with their rideshare, but then personally for my own involvement in the industry, it was about four years from now, or four years back, um, I would ride around the inner suburbs and I'd see uh, Deliveroo cyclists with boxes on their back delivering food. And I just thought, like, that's a perfect job for me. Uh, I messaged my cousin, who was also a bit of a cardiophile. And he, um, he told me that he already managed to get a job with one of the companies, Fedora. And he sent me the application to sign up. And so I did. And then in the interview process, they said about how they were um, a new company. And they were looking for motivated people to participate. And then rise up through the ranks um, and that they, they wanted people that were available Fridays and Saturdays for those busy periods and it just sounded perfect to me. Um, I just remember seeing that the contract, it was the weirdest contract I've ever seen, uh, just like the way it was written. I, I was never used to a contract, contractor-style payment and just uh, 
realizing how as a, the differences between a contractor and employee were a bit of a shock at that moment, but I just accepted it because you get paid to cycle. And that's all I was interested in at the time. Yeah. So it started as a bit of a dream, like there was quite good conditions. Was it $18 an hour? Uh, so Plus. it was because that initial phase when they were first starting, it was 14 an hour and seven or five per delivery. So you could average about two to three an hour. So that's like 25 bucks, I guess, uh, which is great. Um, especially during those peak times when that's when I was willing to work. Uh, yeah. And it was two years working and you kind of, you started as a writer but then moved up in the ranks. Yeah, so I showed a lot of initiative and a lot of communication with the other writers. Um, I think with Fedora, they had like a group chat. I think with the other companies, they didn't really allow it because they didn't want people to band together. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was managing that chat group. Um, so I would speak with all the other writers, help them out, and the higher-up managers saw that and just decided to give me uh, captain rank status, which just meant that I was um, the person that new writers would get sent to to train them and to get them familiar with the company and just to, like, manage them and help them out if they have any issues. And then eventually... After the company got bigger and bigger, they no longer wanted the captains, um, so, but they still wanted one someone who would deal with all the riders, and they saw that I had experience with it, so they offered me the rider manager job for Melbourne. So then I became the person that was interviewing the new riders, and then I got to see how the contracts, how the payment schemes for the contracts changed over those two years I was working, and they just kept dropping and dropping. I remember like when people would come in during... like the Monday of the week um, and then once we get through all the processing and send them out the, the contract by the end of the week the contracts had dropped down again and like I had to decide which payment scheme they had to get assigned to and like it would usually get down to the lower one even though they signed up on Monday uh, so there's a lot of uh, a few disgruntled um, people at that time but eventually it got down to seven dollars an order and that was that was just too low uh, the union in Melbourne, held a rally two years ago, and I went along just to see what if I, any other riders would be there, because at the time, everyone was very upset about the working conditions. Uh, I was a bit shocked to find that I was one of two riders there. Uh, I was working a shift later on in that day, so I had brought my um, bag. So the media people saw me, and they asked for an interview, and I spoke up at that moment, and I just kept speaking. And that led to me getting dismissed, um, terminated and I felt like that was extremely unfair based on how much I put into the company um, so I was very grateful for the union to come and support me with that unfair dismissal and I'm glad that the result worked out as it did yeah so Fedora is no longer operating in Australia kind of in that case precipitated that right yeah, I think um, having to pay everyone employee wages was too much um, they also dropped out of three other countries at the time, so they were just summing up what was best for them and not for the workers. Rosai, what about you? How did you first come across the idea of gig work? Yep, so just like Josh, I started um, my stepped my uh, foot into the gig economy with Uber, Uber Eats as a driver. Um, so I was lured into it at first because of the flexibility aspect of the job. So I can choose my own hours and being a student, I was like really fascinated that me working when I feel like according to my own terms. But uh, very soon I found out 
it's not actually how fun as it sounds like. The working conditions and the pay, like the pay conditions, they're not up to the par. So that's how I met one of the union members, Alan. And um, just I was delivering an Uber Eats order. Alan came up to me and said that we're running this campaign against, um, uh, like, um, against Uber Eats, who like not paying delivery workers enough money. So that's how I got in touch with union members, and through uh, the union, I got in touch with Eugenia, and um, yeah, so. Now I also do security work, which is also in the gig economy. So yeah, just balancing my time in between work and studies. Yep. Thanks, Wasai. And Rochelle, how did you come across this figure of like thinking about the gig worker as someone that you could use in immersive theatre? Um, so I didn't initially set out to do that. Um, <laughs> I was coming up with an idea for my Melbourne Fringe show last year. Um, and I guess a bit of a warning that I'll be touching on some mental health um, issues. And, um, uh, and yeah, I really wanted to talk more about social isolation. Um, I've had some, you know, of my best older female friends in their lives and thinking about them being in a space where they were more comfortable speaking with a stranger than with their own family. Like that kind of, those little sparks of stranger connection really interested me. Um, and then from there, it was just hearing in the media about wacky stories. I had a friend whose partner worked for Uber Eats and she told me um, that, you know, incident reports would get floated around the office and on one occasion, um, um, someone was delivering food got to the door and there was a note on the door that said, I'm really, really sorry, but I've ended my life, like, and you're going to have to deal with that. I'm so, so sorry. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that moment mixed with my wanting to, you know, yeah, explore kind of public-private spaces and what being a person means when you can have everything delivered to your door and curate who you're talking to so closely um, led me to making a show... Um, where the audience are going from the public space and visiting people in their houses and kind of getting more than they bargained for in a way, yeah. And you took that show to many different contexts. So um, it sort of started here in Melbourne but then went to Sydney and also to these quite remote locations, so Iceland. I, I guess I was interested in how these concepts translate in different, like, communities and cultures looking at that idea of like isolation and belonging if you could maybe talk through how it changed in those different places yeah so in Coburg um, I guess Trevor who was the nom 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 team leader was this really idealistic guy and the main focus of that was having this weird intercultural intergenerational connection when he meets an older woman who's like oh my God, I can't find my earrings. I, I ordered cannoli, but can you help me like do this whole other thing? And then I'm sorry, but you're gonna find out that I'm planning to end my life and all this other stuff. And like, they just kind of have this, you know, like the most important um, moment or one of the most important moments in her life kind of gets intercepted by like this sort of stranger connection. Um, in Iceland, in Seydisfjörda, because it was in a very remote, town, there were 670 people who lived there. Um, 
the process was very much about me like I was there from Australia, I'd looked up some social isolation stats and suicide stats and um, you know that was why I chose Iceland to pitch it to. Um, but in that town someone had ended their life earlier in the year and so for over um, about two months I was just knocking on doors and meeting people and spoke to the mayor and spoke to everybody about my intentions with making the work if, if that would be appropriate in the town, that sort of thing. Um, and they don't have food delivery there because there's one restaurant open in the winter. It was like three hours of sunlight when I was there at the height. So they're like, this is never gonna happen. It's an like, imaginative leap. Um, but really talking about sort of what community means, what it means to know what your neighbor's doing. Um, people there were very much codependent because it's, it was a remote, um, community so for them it was it was a very different show in a way it sort of was reaffirming yeah we we look we do look out for each other and um, and it was yeah it, it was very different to the more urban context um, yeah thanks Rochelle and Sarah you've been obviously immersed in thinking about like employment um, yeah employee employer relations and um, kind of fair work for a long time Tell me about when you first started kind of hearing about the gig economy and, and your initial thoughts. So my area of research and interest is about labour standards and decent work. So um, prior to you know, hearing about gig work, I'd already been doing work in the transport sector looking at independent contracting and what was genuine contracting or sham contracting and the influence of big corporations that essentially control what happens to the workforce doing the work. So that was kind of my area of interest. And then, of course, when Uber entered the market and so blatantly flouted any existing regulation, then my interest and concern was piqued that um, all of the existing labour regulations seemed to uh, not apply. And so that's when I started getting uh, more interested, um, particularly in my research, um, about what gig work might mean to how we understand all work and the implications that it has in terms of setting new and, and inferior standards to those that we've had and enjoyed for some time. So really for me it was through looking at what does this mean um, on the experience of those undertaking the work. So I've done some research with Uber drivers interviewing, asking, you know, what are the good things, what are the bad things, um, what does it mean for you? Um, but also thinking, I guess, at that um, level of what are we doing about this at a policy level, what does this mean for how the rest of us who aren't gig workers will experience work now and into the future and what does it mean when we allow large corporations, be it Uber or Amazon or any of those sort of behemoths to come into a market and, and set standards that we as a society haven't agreed to um, and to continue to fight those and to be quite um, aggressive about that. So, so my concern was in those areas and then um, uh, I started a little project of my own called Gigwatch, um, which is a website where we're trying to collate as much information as we can to allow people to see what the discussion is in the academic world, in kind of the policy world, um, and ideally we're doing, well, we are doing some, some work directly with stakeholders to really puzzle out 
platform-derived and platform-arranged work is not going anywhere soon. Consumers like it. There are some aspects that workers like, the flexibility that attracted you. There are some aspects that work. How can we possibly imagine and think and create um, work that's delivered to, through technology in a way that doesn't affront what we expect as decent labour standards. So we're doing work directly with stakeholders to say, how do we come up with decent work principles for those people? And as you pointed out earlier, Eugenia, it's not just Uber drivers, it's not just bike couriers. We're also working with people who deliver um, services to the aged in their home, to those people who get support services through the NDIS. So gig work, particularly in those areas, concerns me because it's kind of double the vulnerability. You have workers who don't enjoy the same rights as directly engaged workers who are delivering services to the most vulnerable in our community. So the, the, the sort of flow-ons of that are quite huge. And, of course, then you have your sort of freelance, creative sort of work areas that have historically, I guess, undertaken gig work. Um, but uh, I think there's implications for that end of the labour market as well if we continue to let um, operators come in and essentially set their own terms. So what do we know about who... Who works in the gig economy? Like, what, what do we know in terms of, like, demographics or class, those kinds of things? So, up until very recently, there wasn't a lot known in terms of the size of the gig workforce. But the Victorian government, you know, uh, ahead of the game um, on this, um, with their inquiry that they launched last year, um, commissioned a, a large survey across the country which found that around about 7% um, of the labour force had engaged in gig work in the, the preceding the preceding year, and uh, that was bigger than estimates had been prior to that. It had been suggested that maybe one percent of the of the workforce had engaged, but it was found to be seven percent. It's more likely to be younger people um, to the age of thirty four, sounding young to me these days, um, and also m men. So young men are most likely to engage um, in the gig work. That probably um, reflects the type of gig organisations that we've had grow, such as um, rideshare driving and delivery and, and bike courier um, delivery. Um, so that's the kind of um, scale we're talking about. New South Wales has uh, slightly more than anywhere else um, and Victoria, um, the, the two highest percentages. Uh, but, yeah, about 7%. And in terms of, I mean, for people like us who aren't, like, industrial relations experts, um, can you paint a picture of, like, how Australia compares globally, like, and also how, I guess, current policy is or isn't kind of um, ahead of the game when it comes to gig work? I would definitely say we're not ahead of the game. <laughs> I'd say we're quite uh, behind the game in some, in some ways. So in Australia, um, last year there was a Senate inquiry into the future of work and workers. Um, it came out with some recommendations about, not surprisingly, gig work as part of that. It was also looking at AI and other things which are disrupting, I hate that word so much, um, work as we know it. Um, and there were some recommendations about reconsidering the types of conditions that gig workers uh, are entitled to. Um, the, uh, that the majority report recommended that. The minority report, which was the coalition side of that Senate inquiry, disagreed. 
we haven't seen anything from that since. That's not entirely surprising. So federally, we're not seeing much in terms of a will to change policy setting. And, and just very quickly, um, we have a situation under the Fair Work Act where you can either be an employee, a direct employee, or an independent contractor. That's the choice. Um, the decision, as Josh would know very, very well, about who's declared an employee and independent contractor is subject to interpretation by the Fair Work Commissioner who hears your case. Um, and yes, I see Josh nodding down there. Um, and it's they measure it against a set of criteria um, that include things like the level of control that an organisation has over when you, when and how you work, whether you wear livery, whether you can subcontract the work. There's a range of, of um, criteria, but there's no um, established weighting for those criteria. So what we have at the moment is a situation where if you're employed as a gig worker, but you feel very much like you're an employee because, you know, you don't have much control, you're working for that organisation, they set the terms, you don't negotiate, etc., etc. Um, as you as an individual have to bring that argument to the Fair Work Commission and fight that out based on your exact... So there's no... So while Josh's case, we could say, set the precedent for Fedora and Fedora drivers, it didn't set it for Deliveroo or Uber Eats because each organisation has slightly different conditions and then within that, each employee, each worker has to come and argue their case as well. So, so it's, a, it's a difficult system at the moment. We know that there's a case in the Fair Work Commission um, of an Uber Eats uh, driver who um, says that she was unfairly dismissed. That will rest on whether you can show that she was, in fact, engaged as an employee. So, again, all of those arguments rehearsed in your case, Josh, will come out with the specifics of this case. There is also uh, a delivery rider who has brought a case in the Federal Circuit Court for underpayment. So that means that that will run a bit differently because it's not the Fair Work Commission. That will be very interesting to watch to see if there's any, any difference in outcome because they won't necessarily be applying the same kinds of um, uh, decision-making processes that you have at the Fair Work Commission. So there's this legal um, vortex, if you like, that you get sucked into if you want to show that you're anything other than independent contractor. Now, the problem with that for me is that it is the organisation that gets to unilaterally decide. It says to you, you are an independent contractor, not let's have a look and see if you're an independent contractor. You are. And so my concern in this, in this sort of legal sphere is that, that the only way that you can challenge that is for an individual often represented by the appropriate union, to fight that out. Um, so we're a bit behind. There, there has been similar cases going on around the world. Um, in the UK, different legislation. They've got a different definition of worker in their act. So they've got three categories, employee, contractor and worker. And so that, that allows for some entitlements to be paid um, to gig workers. Um, in the US, there's been some interesting developments. So in California, a couple of months ago, we had a bill called AB5 put to uh, legislators and it passed, which in January 2020 will mean that gig operators, the majority of gig operators are going to have to consider reclassifying their workers as employees. You can imagine that they're not super happy about that. Um, and I was reading today that Uber said, yeah, we ain't doing it, uh, which has kind of been Uber's response to any regulation it doesn't like. You know, we're just not doing it, come and get us. So we're yet to see how that will play out. And of course, uh, even more recently in New Jersey, 
Um, the State Department, one of the departments there that looks after these kinds of issues, has fined Uber $649 million um, that they say they haven't paid in employee taxes. So the implication there is that Uber drivers are employees and that, that means, and this is the big social issue everywhere, if you have people as independent contractors, you're not getting the same tax exchanges that you normally do. I don't understand why governments aren't more worried about this, that you, you essentially don't have people in the PAYE system, which means that your tax, you know, if you start letting more and more of the uh, workforce be independent contractors, your tax base is being eroded. Uh, and in Australia, that's a superannuation issue as well. So um, we are behind. We don't show any great desire to do much about it, except, you know, in Victoria, I'm glad I'm here, that there's some appetite at least to understand and investigate what the options are. Um, but I wouldn't say we were ahead of the game. Definitely sounds like we are far behind. Um, I wanted to ask um, about this notion of almost it being like a computer game or like when you're working in the system. I think we were talking earlier about kind of rising through the ranks or even Josh for yourself, like that idea that you were able to kind of move up through the system as well. And um, I guess I'd like to hear about your experiences within the game and maybe how that might be set up and then connect that to your work as well, this idea of like a game. Uh, yes, yeah, so I guess personally for me, with that chat group, I was like always on my phone, always responding to texts and messages. Um, but I guess with the gamifying of the job, uh, they introduced like a batch system. Oh no, they introduced um, a batch system to allow people to pick their shifts and to improve your rank. So you'd be in a better batch, you'd have to work more hours, deliver more orders um, per hour and just uh, be available on the Fridays and Saturdays when they wanted you. So just being, being the ideal worker for the company. Um, yeah, so you're, you're forced to like be on the system the whole time. So personally with me, I was getting uh, some of my friends to work on my account just to, that way we would have an account which would always be in the number one batch just so we would always be able to once we get the shifts, then we could pass them off to the other, to our friends. Um, and eventually, if you have everyone doing that, then it just, it just, everyone's eating off each other in that system. And uh, that was, at that time, that was what everyone was most upset about. So that, that led me on to going to that union meeting as well. Um, so with the batch system, just for people who, like, aren't so aware about it, there's different tiers, like different levels, and if you're in that top bracket, you get more work, you get the better shifts, the more lucrative ones. Um, I think when I've been kind of researching this, there's probably colleagues of yours who have either gotten sick or gone on holiday and been assured that they won't lose their place in the batch. Is that correct? They yeah, um, they were told that they would remain in the batch that they had when they went on holidays, and when they came back, they were just dropped off and once you're in the bottom batch, it's um, very difficult to get shifts which would allow you to show that you could deliver more orders per hour um, and to rise back up. Um, so then you would just be relying on people to hand off their shifts to you. And uh, with grabbing the shifts, so once you're in batch one, uh, the shifts would be released at around 4 p.m. on the Wednesday or Thursday? Tuesday, yeah? It's another batch one rider just over there. Yeah. Uh, and then batch two would, um, the shifts would open up at 9 p.m. 
Um, so I just have memories of going to um, uni where the internet speed's like the best and just getting there right at nine o'clock and just once the system's open, you just grab as many shifts as you can. You don't care when they are or what they are. You just grab 14 shifts, you know, your lunch and your dinner. And then once you have them, then you can like trade them off for better shifts and just like use them as cards to <laughs> get the ideal week. <laughs> And Wasai, before you were just talking about how you switched to Uber driving now, but um, starting on a silver level and now you've moved up to gold. And yeah. what does that mean? So with Uber for Uber Eats, there's like every, it's a free for all thing. You just sign up and all, basically all you have to have is like a bicycle to be a rider. This is just for Uber Eats and there's no way you can get up in a tier level. So there's no denominations. Whereas with Uber X, you have like these um, different tiers. So a silver, gold, platinum, and um, a diamond member. So basically what that means is a silver member just gets some kind of benefits with like, they'd get four cents of uh, petrol for their cars. Once you move up to gold level, you get to see it's like the, your destination it, they don't tell you your destination, but you somewhat have an idea of what direction you're going to head to before you accept the ride. With diamond level is, uh, sorry, with platinum and diamond is that you can have priority access to airport pickups. So if you're waiting at the airport, you can be higher up in the queue and um, do airport pickups as well. But um, yeah, silver and gold members, they're not, uh, they don't have access to airport pickups. And how much do you have to do to rise up those different levels? So yeah, um, you start off at a silver level and um, from there onwards you have to have 1,000 points to, ha to be a gold member. And uh, there's one point per delivery. Um, during peak hours, if you do one ride, then you get five points. But generally, if it's like a normal time, then one point per delivery and yeah, gold, um, gold tier starts from um, 1,000 points and then 1,800 points for platinum and so on. You kind of go up the ladder. What do you got to do to get diamond? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's like it, uh, mark those points are for three months. So within a three-month period, if you get um, 2,500 points, it would be. I'm not too sure. But uh, yeah, so work all the time. And there's no practicality in working with Uber for a longer period of time. So if you're doing Uber for like 20 hours a week, choosing the best hours, then you can make substantial amount of money. But if you're just doing this as a full-time job, then there's not much practicality, financial practicality, I don't think there is. So putting in extra hours isn't actually very practical. Rochelle, with Nom Nom Nom, um, were you thinking about that, that kind of game structure at all when you were devising the work? Um, so in the show in Sydney, um, the task is that you're delivering to three different customers in a certain amount of time, but there is no third house actually, so that's built in because the second house, like something so massive happens that you kind of need to be present and be there to help this woman or support her. Um, so it was quite funny seeing audience members, like, while really intense stuff was happening, be like, but 
we have to deliver the fish today. Oh, oh, should we go? And be like, oh, that was that was quite funny. Um, I guess in my time working at at Centrelink, like there'd be, you know, how many responses can you get through every day, and that kind of some competition around that. So it was really interesting to me, like when and how people would go, actually, I want to be a human, I want to like go beyond the robot lines that we've been given and I really want to, you know, like go above and beyond and, and so sort of when, when do we make those choices even if it might not serve the game or serve our place in it, um, just to be kind. Um, I guess that was one of the themes. Yeah. Were you able to do that um, within that structure? Like how... You know, when you kind of had those moments where you felt like you really needed to reach out to somebody, were you able to kind of still do that in robot language or <laughs> not? Um, I mean, it would still be robot-y, but I guess you'd go, you'd try to do a bit more research and find more possible solutions or escalate things and, you know, chuck in a little smiley. And, and smiley, like, emojis took off because this was in social media land where, um, you know, it's, no one has any reason to be smiling at you. Like, it's lots of, yeah, lots of complaints and stuff not working. Um, so just kind of trying to create not just a faux-friendly culture, but go, all right, like, let's actually try to do everything that we can and before passing someone off to the phone line or to the web link that, you know, might not be useful. Can we talk about that idea of, I guess, communicating um, within the app or like to the boss? I think last week we were talking about Frank the algorithm who might be uh, connected to Deliveroo or Uber. Is that right? Deliveroo. Um, when you guys as the workers, when you had an issue or have an issue on the job, um, what's available to you? Like what can you do? Uh, I guess... Because really, uh, for all the writers, they would be contacting me with their issues. Uh, personally, for me, if I had any issues, I would probably go up to uh, my manager, which is just like the regional manager. Um, it was mostly just for issues like uh, if you had an accident on the job, um, you'd have to somehow work out whether it was while you were actually doing the work, whether you could get the insurance from the company or not. Um, it never really worked out in the favour of the worker for the situations that I was aware of. Um, yes, yeah, it wasn't much support at all. It's, you you kind of wish like you never had any issues. Um, if you had an issue with the customer, it'd be, you'd talk with dispatch and hope that they'd be able to help. Um, but usually they would just give you another number to call or an email address to email the customers if someone is waiting for food and they're going to check their emails. Um, yeah, it's, there's not much support. Yeah. And you sort of, because you, I guess you transitioned from like, I guess working through to management, how did you deal with that? Because I'm, I'm guessing that you had to deal with writer complaints quite a lot. Uh, yeah, you deal with writer complaints and if they're talking about some subject that I had no control over, like the pay schemes or anything like that, I would just handball it up to someone who else, who, who did speak on behalf of um, the person or the people that are in charge of the pay scheme. But... Uh, if it was to do with shifts or whatever, that was probably to do with me. Um, I could probably help them out with that. But um, mostly people understood that they had no power, so they, they learned to not complain. Yes. What about you, Wasai? 
similar feelings, yeah, goes likewise with Uber Eats. We're basically um, interacting with an algorithm, and basically that algorithm just tells us, lists the contract and tell if there's an issue with the delivery, if the customer is given the wrong address, they uh, tell us to wait there, but they'd never give us like exact instructions on what to do, so we're basically just on our own trying to figure out if something goes wrong, just yeah, do something that makes it right. So yes, with the um, Uber Eats during daytime, there is a, a rider support hotline, but reaching that hotline is like it's not available to every every driver. You have to be very you you've got to know your way to get to that um, hotline first and. Once you reach them, they're, they're not very helpful either. You basically, we're on our own doing, yeah, trying to figure things out. So there's on, not much support available. Who's on the other end of that line? Like, are they? Humans, but uh, they're <laughs> not on, in Australia, I can tell you that. Definitely not sitting in an office in Australia, overseas. So yeah, there's offshoring, outsourcing. I think last week we were speaking about how, yeah, already um, the people in those roles are outsourced workers as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, originally Dispatch were in Sydney, which were great. Um, it's good to have someone in Australia that could help you. Uh, eventually they outsourced it to the Philippines and they just would copy and paste their replies pretty much. It, was, it became a, a joke where we would take what they would say to us and we would just like use that in our own remarks to each other. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not much help. <laughs> um, and what's the role, I guess I'll ask this to you, Sarah, what's the role of um, the public in this debate? Look, I think the role of the public is, is critical, but uh, I'm not entirely optimistic either. <laughs> um, I think the, the capacity to affect change in the absence of political will to regulate or enforce... Um, appropriate conditions um, that leaves a void that, you know, you, you, there is the potential for consumer concern and action to, to fill. Um, and um, one of the things we're trying to do with GigWatch is to provide information so that people can make informed choices about the type of you know, platform they engage with, with regards to, to labour standards. But the the research would tell us that consumer action in other areas of the economy um, don't have a huge effect. So I think there would need to be quite a um, concerted effort to um, uh, try to force some kind of change in these platforms through consumer concern and if you're an organisation like Uber that has uh, really sought to dominate and saturate markets um, they have really done that very effectively so you would need a consumer campaign the lights of which we have never seen um, it would make Nike in the 90s look small um, so uh, I think there is potential, I think it's latent, um, and I think it will take, you know, really um, clever, articulate and brave people like we've got on this panel to speak out about what's not right um, for enough people to be concerned to do something. And what would, um, what would you guys like to see when it comes to work? How do you think 
work defines us or what would you like to kind of see shift in the industry as well? Uh, I guess I haven't really returned back to the industry since being dismissed. Um, I could go back, but then I just know that I'm being exploited still uh, and I don't want to be back in that position. I guess for the industry to change, for me to join it, it would have to, I don't know, there'd have to be more transparency. Um, I personally was never really a fan of, the, uh, fan of the flexibility. I was happy to get told my shifts like a week in advance and I could plan around it. Um, that's ideally how I like to work. Um, yeah, so if there was just that option, um, and as long as the pay scheme's right and the super, you're getting the super and all those um, insurances that workers get, uh, that employees get, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Um, but I don't see it happening, yeah. What about you, Asai? I'd say better wages, which is why like people get into this sort of work, I'd say, uh, predominantly. So better wages is the first thing. And then a sense of community. Like with this digitalization and automation, there's so much isolation for us like as workers. We, we don't have any sort of human interaction. So yes, yeah, so some sense of community and um, better working conditions and know that if something goes wrong, we're covered for it. And yeah, being less redundant. So because the, like every day, so many other riders are signing up. There's so much saturation with the drivers and riders. And every time a new rider signs up, it means everyone else is getting more redundant. So just knowing that there's gonna be work out there in the future. That's very important, I'd say. What about you, Rochelle? Work and community, is that sort of what you're aiming for? Yeah, I guess more broadly, my art is trying to say, it's like, don't be an asshole, generally. <laughs> so That's I suppose that applies to... <laughs> um, yeah, and in the last version of the show, like, the audience had little headsets on... And so they met their team leader, who in China was my partner, who's a white Australian boy guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, that whole thing of being an outsider and everyone looking at him being like, he doesn't speak Mandarin, so he's an idiot. And then hearing his internal monologue in Mandarin, like, going through, yeah, just going, oh, these are my insecurities, this is what's happening, oh my god, how do I impress everyone? Um, so yeah, I guess just sort of not judging people and on, on whatever side you're on, like, I guess that's what I like to talk about and look into is, you know, listen for half a second more before you jump to conclusions about the people that you're working with or who are, yeah, you're meeting day to day. And you, Sarah? I, what I would love to see is an end to double speak about you know, organisations that use some form of technology and think that that's a, a veil, it's very thin in my view, that allows them to do basically whatever they like. So I think we need to, this whole future of work, and I know I've got it in my very long and ridiculous title, but the whole future of work debate I think needs to be reframed to really be about decent work. Decent work is what matters no matter what kind of work you do. The capacity to have voice in, in what you do, to have some say over what you do, to have some autonomy and control, which in every study, everywhere, at any time, has always come 
out as top of people's list as to what they care about at work. Um, so I think changing that, that conversation away from this is the future, it has to be like this, here's the technology, this is, you know, technological determinism gone mad, to actually what does it mean to have decent work and, and, to, and for all of us to call out the behaviour of big corporate you know, money-making organisations that want to set their own rules. And that's where I think we can get, as citizens, can get a bit cranky and say, no, that's not what we agreed to, that's not what's allowed here. So I think um, conversations and activity and actions which actually challenge the kind of um, uh, per managerial prerogative that has been um, expressed so often in all of those gig organisations, I think has to be challenged. And this idea that because a service is convenient that we should allow it at any price uh, needs to be challenged. And, and I don't know how many dinner tables I've had that conversation over, but I think it's a necessary one. Great. Well, that, that's a good point, I think, to open it up to you guys, because I'm equally curious, I guess, to hear from you and your responses, um, whether you've worked in the gig economy or use it. Um, yeah, welcome any questions. And we've got mics. Uh, I just have two questions probably for you, Sarah. Um, one is just since like uh, Uber has become a public company, mm -hmm. has that changed at all their approach? Um, and I guess also not having the access to sort of unlimited venture capital, but actually having to live and die by their share price a bit. And also whether these types of practices have started to filter into other types of companies in Australia. So is it affecting the entire like, uh, industrial relations sector yeah. in Australia? Look, really fantastic questions. I haven't followed the Uber um, share movements very closely, but I do know that they're still operating very much in the red. Um, so there's concern about that. And everyone keeps saying, oh, but they're playing the long game. But again, without the sort of injections of venture capital, how long that game is, is interesting. Interestingly, when Lyft put their IPO um, up, they listed the reclassification as employer. So Lyft is a, a rideshare um, operator in the US. They put in their uh, risks the... the uh, probability that there might be reclassification and what that might mean. So it is a live concern to them um, and, and to all um, rideshare operators. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about share prices and exploiting workers, very often you'll see on uh, in organisations that take a very hard line. Oh, I don't want to teach people how to do this. If any of you are hardline HR managers, uh, Close your ears now. now. But very often, very often um, when organisations take a very hard line um, approach to managing employees, their share price goes up, I'm sad to say. Um, so probably the harder Uber goes on this kind of things, the, the um, better their shares will do, unfortunately. With regards to impact in other sectors, I think this is the real, real concern about allowing um, un unrestrained, if you like, practices um, in quasi-independent contracting status is that it puts pressure on any organisation in any sector that is... Um, uh, relying on a direct employment relationship. So we have courier companies that do have um, employment that's casual and direct um, and abide by the award. Um, so that puts pressure on. It also um, 
sets uh, new normative expectations across everyone's work that um, it's okay to have this um, task by task approach that that's acceptable now that that gigging any form of any job is actually okay because that's what we're all used to we all understand it um, so I think there's there's a very dangerous precedent and and all of the talk and all if you read <laughs> If you're lucky enough to have to read the consultants' report on this, reports on this stuff, they talk about when they survey organisations, they see themselves very much engaging more and more gig workers to do their core work. So if they're not doing it now, their, their prediction is that they will be using it more and more. So I think it's, it's very much a concern, as I said, to those of us who are lucky enough to have... Um, you know, direct employment relationships if we want them. Um, I think it's a real worry. More questions? Uh, I was just going to ask that you said before, sorry, um, I, <laughs> I, but about that consumer choices don't make that much difference without, like, legislation. Or can you expand on that, like, what you're referring to or is it a research that you've read or yeah. something? So, uh, I, I don't think without... I don't think I put the two things together. I do think we need better regulation in whatever form that comes. And I often argue that we're probably, at the moment, for the foreseeable future, not going to see anything in labour law um, in terms of any changes. But I would argue, like Victoria, that has looked creatively at other ways to regulate, for example, labour hire, led the way with labour hire by carving off what the state could do in its jurisdiction. I would argue that there are aspects of state jurisdictions that could be harnessed for some kind of regulation. New York City did the same thing. It's put in place provisions to regulate um, ride-sharing in New York City. So my arguments in terms of regulation would be, look, I would prefer that there was something federally in, in labour law that, that happens that could deal with what I think is the undermining of labour conditions. It's very unlikely, given the politics of that. Any change in labour law is very contentious, always. Um, so, thinking creatively about what are local um, and state-based um, regulatory leverage points, if you like, that could be used. And so I know in Victoria that there has been some moves with regards to your small business, I don't think you call it a small business ombudsman, but with your small business regulation that has actually started to open up a, a point for gig workers to go in and make claims, which hasn't been done elsewhere. So, so in terms of regulation, that's a point that I would make. In terms of consumer action, the research that I've read with regards to impact of consumers or long-term, you know, boycotts and those kinds of things. We've been very, when I say we, because I'm including myself as a consumer, take an organisation like Apple, you know, I mean, what do you need more than people throwing themselves off Foxconn buildings to get people... If you look in my bag, you'll see my Mac and my iPhone. What does it take to get people to stop purchasing that service. Um, so I'm a little bit sceptical about the capacity to rally the kind of um, the kind of action required. And also because it's a bit complex. You know, it's a bit complex to get your head around what's an independent... I mean, Josh, you know better than most. What are the tests? Am I a contractor? Am I an employee? Like, it's not a nice, easy, you know, um, a, a nice, easy uh, thing to get your head around as a consumer. Um, and also, there does seem to be some kind of regulation. So normally we can be comfortable that 
you know, other things, other organisations, other regulators are doing their job and that, that must be okay. So I just, I worry that it would take consumer action on a scale that we just haven't seen yet. Um, I just have a question about the sort of um, gig work and how sort of legislation or changes to gig work to make it more equitable and fair, um, sort of how that interacts with the idea of like a social wage. Um, so we have, you know, obviously deficient, but um, social wage or sort of welfare in Australia and there are lots of places in the world where there's conversations about... Um, universal basic income and things like that, that um, in one way, you know, might free up unions to, um, instead of having, in the case of the US, instead of having to push for, um, you know, health insurance for employees, it might actually free them, if, if that is a standard thing, then it might free them up to work on other issues around labour. Um, but also I sort of wonder about, like, sorry, I'm doing the thing where I'm like, working this out of my head. Um, um, obviously, gig work is very much at the sort of technological forefront of, of labour. Um, and the minute that Uber can replace its human drivers with um, driverless cars or, or whatever, or drones, it will. So potentially this work is kind of endangered in a way. So kind of maybe it's a, a question about stepping back from gig work as it is currently um, and is it enough to um, sort of push for governments to re invest more in, in the concept of a social wage um, or I guess it's both but um, how, do, how do those two things kind of interact like um, uh, legislating it and sort of making gig work better or pushing and pushing for better like social wage kind of conditions. Alright, if there was a UBI I would instantly sign up to, del to deliver an Uber straight away, yeah. That, that'd be great if there was a UBI. So universal basic income, which is, it's being tested in different kind of countries and contexts um, at the moment. I think Finland... Maybe I think it's a big thing in Silicon Valley as well because I think a lot of people like Zuckerberg um, can see the kind of, yeah, just the, the huge kind of rift. So it's not coming from a kind of like social good perspective but it's like, wow, it's going to be a revolt or something against me and I'm going to be overthrown, um, which is interesting that it's something that's sort of like being looked at on the left and right. Um, can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just have a disclaimer and say it's not my area of research. So everything I say is pure speculation in my own opinion. Um, I, I'm not a huge believer in the UBI because of the place that work has in so many people's lives. Um, aside from... I, think, I don't know if it's the time of year and I'm a bit tired but I'm a bit cynical... The chances of us getting UBI in a country that likes to talk about dull bludgers and lifters and leaners and... I mean, the idea that we would make a leap from that 
to a universal <laughs> social wage. Um, it just seems too much for my poor, poor little brain to, to manage. But I also think we could reconceptualise and think about meaningful work that could be offered. So if we think about if we think about the Australian economy at the at the moment and the need for stimulus, you know, some good old fashioned government sponsored infrastructure projects that create jobs. I mean, I know it's, it's you know, uh, sacrilegious or something to say that, but we have in the past looked at ways of creating a basic standard of living, a wage for more people, by actually allowing for public spending not to be a dirty thought or a, or a bad thing. So I think we could think about UBI that the principles behind but behind it and think about but how do we also then allow for the social connections that work brings and for the other sort of important identity and esteem and other issues that 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 work does allow for individuals so i think um i i like the utopian feel of a ubi um do i think it will happen in australia not in my lifetime um and i think there are other ways of of sharing sharing uh, income, sharing wealth that are actually socially very productive. I guess, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that UBI in Australia is a long-term unlikelihood. Mm. Um, but I guess also to me in terms of other things like um, increases of, of welfare payments, um, sort of making those things more generous, things like that. Well, I reckon it's a great idea if we can get these tech companies to pay any tax. Yeah. I think yeah. we should just divert it directly from there into our social wage. Any final questions? Um, I was just interested in asking about the possible expansion of unions into this industry, if anyone had any insights on that. I think Alan, can I'll you just preface that with I wouldn't have asked it a couple of years ago, but with the unionisation of uh, hospitality work more recently in Victoria, it seems like a possible thing. So. Alan, do you want to speak to that? Give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Alan. I work with... I'm a bike courier half the week. And I'm a gig economy organiser at Victorian Trade Pub. So I don't actually work for a union though we do work very closely with the Transport Workers Union and I'm a member and a delegate there in my other job as well. But we're basically uh, trying to move into this space, reach out to um, chiefly food delivery workers right now, but if we've got the capacity later on, we'll be looking at the, the wider gig economy. Um, personally, I think something like what Hospo Voice have done over the last couple of years is a, a model that's really worth looking at and um, pretty inspirational. But, um, yeah, there's a, a whole heap of challenges. Um, these there's so many of these workers. We don't even know how many. They're so dispersed. They come from different backgrounds. They're in um, often precarious work situations and precarious visa situations as well. So there's um, it's really not traditional unionism. Um, and... I'm glad that uh, the inquiry happened and that the, the work that I'm doing is there right now, but it's, I think unions have been slow. It's, this is uh, the first real work in Australia that I'm aware of and it, it should have been happening a few years ago and there should be more of it happening now. Um, but yeah, I think unions have, uh, 
unions are quite dependent on the old form of employment um, and it's I think it's taking them a, a while to get their heads around this this new form of work and how they can they can fit into that but um, we see a lot of public awareness growing and a lot of awareness growing in the movement too so hopefully things um, start speeding up over the next couple of years. Could I just add one thing to that which is um, from a broader perspective and I'm really interested to hear about the work you're doing on is that the other thing about union capacity in Australia to organise any new form of work is that unions have been having to fight a whole range of battles just to ensure that they're allowed to represent any workers, let alone gig workers. So um, things like the Ensuring Integrity Bill um, and other um, types of challenges to the capacity for unions to legally represent um, workers um, have also diverted, uh, the Royal Commission and other things have diverted a lot of resources and attention that unions could otherwise put into really worthy campaigns. So I think there's um, institutional barriers and political barriers that have also been in place that uh, have not exactly been helpful. There's also the question of because of because these workers are largely contractors is even if we get them as, member, as members, what do, do what do we do then? Like um, our our power relies on awards and agreements, and we don't have if these workers are still classified as contractors, it's, we have to think of new ways to compel the companies to deal with us. Are your restrictions in terms of industrial action then as valid if they're contractors as well? Um, Maybe we that's something. Have <laughs> um, I'm definitely not an expert here, but we might have a few more options yeah. for industrial action because they're contractors, they can just withdraw their labour. It's not, um, you don't have to jump through all the hoops that you have to jump through with traditional industrial action these days. So we, um, yeah, there's, I think legally there could be more we can do, we just have to organise them first. Which is very difficult. <laughs> Any last questions? Ah, lucky last. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, I, I kind of work a little bit in research area around the creative entrepreneurs and creative economy, and obviously there's a gigging economy there. And I've been reading a bit of Angela McRobbie recently, and she sort of, I mean, today we've talked about kind of older forms of dealing with work conditions like lobbying governments, getting better legislation, or, you know, unionising. But what Angela McRobbie is sort of um, proposing is a kind of radical social enterprise model, or people engaging with new kinds of economic models. And she's arguing that rather than the kind of individualised entrepreneur, we're talking about like old forms of cooperatives and collectives. So is there something like that in, in this discussion as well? Like, yeah. I, I definitely know that in the States there's um, been cooperatives that have developed to counter and enter into markets where um, gig platforms operate, for example, um, rideshare. Um, there's also been um, um, cooperative set up in, I was talking before about healthcare. Um, in New South Wales, there's a cooperative um, called This Cooperative Life that has set up and de-gigified 
um, the provision of aged care and um, disability care in home. So it's it's made employees direct employees instead of gig by gig. Um, there is um, the Business Council of um, Cooperatives and Mutuals is doing a lot of work in this space and we're putting in for a link, your researcher, we're putting in for a linkage grant with them about this uh, <laughs> uh, because the, you're right, the idea that there's actually one way to counter this is to come up with different um, uh, enterprise arrangements to counter the actual business models that are, that are so dominant. So I think it's a really fertile area. In Australia, we haven't seen as much. In Australia, cooperatives don't have the hold or the understanding that you'd say like in, in Europe or even in the States. So I think they're starting from a lower sort of base. But social enterprise in and of itself is a broader category and Australia is kind of the thing. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more action there as well. And I guess from the art perspective, like thinking about um, wage in New York and kind of um, activism that's happening in the art sector is interesting too, um, kind of bargaining on that front and kind of calling out um, poor conditions and low wages. So there's definitely shifts, um, which we could spend a whole nother <laughs> night talking about that. <laughs> it's not all a bad news story, I guess. Um, but I would like to say thank you to all our wonderful speakers. Can you please give them a massive round? Thank you. And um, thank you to MPAV for hosting us tonight and last week. We're back here again on Thursday doing a book club um, talking about Seasonal Associate, which is a book that um, was written by Heike Geisler, who spent three months working in... Oh, there we go. There's one we modelled earlier. Um, yeah, it's her experiences working in an Amazon fulfillment centre. So come back on Thursday if you're free. Um, thank you all for coming down. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.